This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The off-duty Border Patrol agent speaks out about the Texas school shooting, the media's weak trust-building effort, and VR's suffocating new tech. You're listening to the Propaganda Report's Drive Time News Blast. I'm Brad Binkley. Top news of the day. Surprise, surprise. The Texas school shooting story changes again. Reinforcing the fact that we know very little of what actually happened inside that Texas school on that day. Here's what's changed, at least some of what's changed anyway. It was originally reported that the shooter got inside the school through a door that had been propped open by a teacher. Apparently that wasn't the case, at least that's what they're saying. The story now is that the door was shut by that teacher, but for some reason it did not lock, which the teacher was unaware of. Apparently this teacher, whose name they have not given us, was on the phone outside when she saw the shooter jump over a fence with a gun, which caused her to then kick away the rock that was propping the door open, run back inside the school, and then pull the door shut behind her, believing that it would lock because the door is always supposed to be locked. Now, I'm not going to speculate as to why that door did not lock when it's supposed to automatically lock, because what's the point? The story will change in the next few minutes anyway. For all we know, by the time you listen to this, the story will be that there was, in fact, no door there at all, and nobody knows how the person got in. The only thing that we know to be true about this story is that what we know today won't be true tomorrow. I do find it interesting how this information came to light, though, that changed our understanding of how the shooter got in the school. It came from this person's lawyer, this unidentified employee's lawyer. It's a female who made a statement saying that she remembered being on the phone with 911 because apparently she had heard some shots outside earlier, which I don't know why you'd be outside if you heard shots outside earlier. And she remembered coming back inside after seeing the shooter climb the fence with a gun and pulling the door shut as she was talking to 911. The reason I find this interesting is because the media is treating this as truth, as though it's now a proven fact, while what we knew yesterday is now proven to be false. Their confidence in that is what is surprising to me, because, as I said, this information came first from her lawyer who made this claim on her behalf, and then afterwards, the Texas Department of Public Safety said that they confirmed that she did, in fact, shut the door, and they confirmed this by going back and looking at the surveillance footage from the school. Okay, that's great. However, it was also the Texas Department of Public Safety who originally said that the door was open, propped open, and that the shooter entered the school through the door, something that they said that they learned from looking at surveillance footage from the school. How is this any more credible than the previous information? It's literally the same, the way that we got it. We can't rely on what the lawyer of the unnamed lady said because if someone did leave the door open, there'd be incentive to lie so that you can deflect blame. Nobody wants to be the person responsible for leaving the door open that allowed the school shooter to walk in. So 
it's the confirmation of this information from the Texas Department of Public Safety that lends credibility to what the unnamed woman's lawyer said. Except that it doesn't, because we're getting this confirmation from the same people who previously told us the opposite was true while citing the exact same surveillance video. But despite this coming from the same source that the previous information came from, citing the same video, the media is celebrating this in the way that they're talking about it. They're excitingly boasting about how, yet again, yet another example of these corrupt leaders telling a falsehood that ends up being corrected. They have a list that they're keeping, and they're celebrating this one as well as the other ones. And I believe that the media is using this story to try and rebuild their trust among some audiences by reflecting the way that most people feel when they see a story that has so many holes in it, when they hear conflicting evidence given, when they're told this on one day and the opposite the next day. And I believe that they are attempting to appear to be holding these authorities' feet to the fire, to be seeking the truth, to be demanding answers, to be confronting the lies. This was actually a subject at Davos Related to this, the theme at Davos was rebuilding trust in institutions. That was the main theme because these elites know that they have lost trust, lost the trust of the people, and that in order to achieve their climate goals, to achieve their sustainable development goals, their 2030 agenda, they have to rebuild the public's trust in these controlling institutions, starting with the mainstream media. And they talked about this in a number of panels at Davos. There was like a dozen of them that had the word trust in the title. Here's a couple of them. Rebuilding societal trust, AI on the street, managing trust in the public square, tackling youth mistrust, pioneering ways to strengthen digital trust with a label, transforming through trust, trustworthiness and the digital ecosystem. That's just to name a few of the panels about trust that went on at Davos just last week. And that's one agenda I believe that this school shooting is absolutely serving. The media's attempt at the guidance of Davos, to reestablish their trust among certain audiences that they have lost the trust of. Obviously, they're not going to get everybody's trust, but they can win back some people. And here's an example of one way that they do this. And this is definitely good journalism when done genuinely and authentically, but also a tactic for rebuilding trust by creating a trustworthy-like character through a crisis event. For example, we all see the holes in the story. We all want to know the answers, but we're not there. We see the people on TV who are there able to ask the questions. We see a guy from CNN stand up and he starts demanding answers. He starts confronting the authority figures who appear to us to be corrupt. So we love to see corrupt authority figures confronted on their lies, which is exactly what the CNN journalist reporter has appeared to be doing over the past week. I see this guy talk and I go, yeah, that's, that's what I feel. It's reflecting the feelings of most of the people watching because it's an easy win. It's an easy situation to do that. So then after this guy spends a couple of weeks building up the reputation for doing that, as there's that guy who always holds people's feet to the fire, who's not afraid to ask those questions, we start going, all right, yeah, what's this guy going to ask? What's he going to say? And then they start bringing him on certain shows to give his opinion because all of a sudden his opinion has more influence because of this reputation that this new character has built through this crisis event. And then all of a sudden he's talking about other issues. So they're trying to transfer that trust that he's built that's attached to his character for certain audiences, not everybody. But then he's going to be talking about other types of subjects. 
and leading people, leading their opinions on those subjects as well. And it all goes back to the establishment of that trust where he won people's trust through the crisis event. You see this all the time with these events. Somebody becomes a rock star confronting a public official, and then they just become a propaganda mouthpiece. It's the Jim Acosta story is what it is. The Jim Acosta tactic. And they have other tactics as well. That's just one of them. But I do want to move on to this next story, which I think is a far more informative story about this Texas school shooting, although it's not getting any attention in the media. Basically, it's being ignored. And I think you'll see why. That off-duty Border Patrol agent, his name is Jacob Alvarado, he was interviewed on the Today Show. This is the guy who was getting his hair cut when he heard about the shooting and then raced over to the school, went inside, looking for his wife, who was a teacher there, and looking for his kid, who's a student there. Now, he had some interesting things to say during the interview that did not get much attention, which you would think, this being somebody who, if you take this narrative at face value, if you take what he says at face value— This is somebody that you would think that they would report what he said because he would be the most credible person who has spoken about this in the news outside of maybe some of the kids who they didn't really interview. They got a couple comments from and then the journalist who sat down with them told their story for them, which is real shady. This is someone who is allegedly a first person witness to some of this on the inside telling his story and the media has ignored almost all of it. He describes some of what happened here. He saw the police officers in there that everybody's been talking about. He saw what they were doing, how the kids were getting out, and he did help kids get out of the building. And this is also a guy who, when they were first reporting on this story and they were referring to him, they were making it seem as though he is the one who killed the shooter. He's not. He did not kill the shooter. He helped some kids get out, but he did not kill the shooter. Here's what he had to say about his experience during that interview. Did you hear any gunshots while you were in that vicinity? At that time, no. At that time, no. And how were the kids getting out? You know, I mean, it, I think people are trying to understand how this unfolded. It's it's chaos that mm-hmm. you, is easy to understand. But where were the police? Where was the classroom? The, the, kid, the, the police were breaking out the windows on the outside, and the kids were jumping out through the window. They were jumping out through the window, down the... In the parking lot, down the, the pave, down the pavement, headed towards the funeral, the funeral home. Did you ever see those officers that were poised outside the door? Um, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. there's a lot of scrutiny now of yeah, those yeah. actions and whether they should have gotten in. Did you ever have any occasion to interact with them at all? Um, at one point, at one point, I went, I was there at the door, fixing to go in. But once again, I didn't have any of my gear. It wouldn't be a, it wouldn't have been a smart move for me. All those guys had their gear and stuff. So, like I said, I pulled back, pulled back. My wife had texted me, called me that she was okay at the funeral home. All the, the kids were already out of that building. So I went on to find my daughter in her, in her wing. Okay, he heard no gunshots. This guy got there around 11.52. This was revealed earlier in the interview. No gunshots going on. He was in that hallway. At least while he was there, no gunshots. Now, he did see those cops in the hallway, saw them outside the room. But there was also other cops that were breaking windows, helping kids get out. Now, the narrative right now doesn't mention any of that. Right now, it's all about trying to portray the police as doing literally nothing. But apparently, that's not the case. There were police officers helping children get out of the building by breaking some of those windows. Now, that hallway where all those cops were waiting outside the room, he did not stay there. He left there. He pulled back because he did not have his gear. And that would have been too dangerous for him to go in without the proper gear. But he did allude to, in fact, say that the other officers out there did, in fact, have their gear. And the way that he said that, however, is he said it as though 
He almost wishes he would have caught himself and stopped himself from saying it because he might recognize how those words could be spun because he's probably seen the media reports on this. And he did say earlier in the interview that the reason he was able to go in the building is because he knows basically everybody in the law enforcement community in that town, and they know him, so they told him to come on in. And those are probably some of his friends that he doesn't want to throw them under the bus. However, he also has experience that most people reporting on this, most people talking about this, myself included, do not have. So an understanding of these situations, because he's trained for it. He's probably maybe been in some of these situations. A better understanding of it. The question of gear, though. I am interested in what they would say about the gear they had because they were ra- waiting for those other resources, and there was no shooting going on at that time. I don't know if it picked back up afterwards, but what he said after this was interesting. He said that he went to his daughter's wing because the kids were already out of the building, talking about the wing that he was currently in. So does that mean that they had evacuated all of the children before he left, or were there still children in the room with the shooter at the time? Because that is one of the focus focuses of this controversy about whether or not this should have been a negotiation situation or a barricaded situation or however they're, they're referring to it as, or they should have been storming in. Were there kids in the room still under threat at that time, or... Were they all gone? Maybe he's just talking about the hallway. I don't know. A real journalist would have probed further to that question, but there was no probing done because this is the mainstream media, obviously. But I found that to be interesting. Now, in the next clip, he is asked specifically about his thoughts on those police officers in the hallway. It's so shocking. Obviously, there's a lot of scrutiny now about the police response. What's your take on all of that? Um... (sighs) To me, I believe everyone there was doing the best that they could, given the circumstances. Yeah, I believe everyone there was doing everything in their power. Well, wrong answer. That's why nobody's talking about his interview. That's why nobody's playing clips from his interview on the mainstream media anyway, because that's the wrong answer. He's not supposed to say that. He's supposed to blame them. He's supposed to throw them under the bus. Had he done that, had he said, you know what, those guys are responsible for all those children for what happened to all of them, then they would have aired that everywhere if he would have pinned blame on them. But he did not do that. We're hearing more about this door, which is coming from a source which is not credible at all, which has done nothing but give wrong information and cause nothing but confusion. And we're hearing nothing about this guy's interview. When this guy was in there, he has experience with this and therefore would most likely be more credible than anybody else that if we take this at face value. More credible than anybody else who they've interviewed or who has been brought on to one of these networks to talk about this. I mean, they'll have kids talk. They'll get kids and they'll have journalists manipulate the kids and then they'll come tell us what the kids said, which is really shady. But this guy, they don't want to hear any more from this guy because he is not saying what fits that narrative, which the narrative as it's currently being framed is very simple. It's being framed like this. That the local police, specifically Uvalde Independent School District Police Chief Peter Aridondo, are responsible for what happened to those children. That they stood outside in the hallway doing nothing for over an hour while those children were locked inside that classroom with that mass shooter. The narrative implies that this Aridondo guy is basically responsible for the deaths of many of those kids. Now, do they actually know this for sure? No, of course not. Because all the information is not gathered. They have no idea. The information they tell us today is going to be different than what they tell us tomorrow. 
what they know what they knew yesterday is different from what they knew today. Nothing that they have learned really has remained consistent. So how could they possibly know that the conclusions that they have drawn through this narrative about this guy, Ari Dondo, are true when nothing they've told us has been true so far? They do not know and they do not care because narrative warfare, and that's what this is, everything's narrative warfare at this point, is unconcerned with truth. Narrative warfare will tell truths if those truths serve an agenda. But it is not a primary concern for them. If a truth does not serve an agenda, it is gone by the wayside. So we don't know what, what's going on. They don't know what's going on. And they don't care what's going on because their goal is to push this agenda. And I think part of the reason they want to push this agenda, among other reasons, gun control reasons and whatnot, is that this is another way to make them appear to be standing up to corrupt authority who is trying to engage in a cover-up. And when you can pin the blame of the death of children on someone and have people go with it, then you can position yourself as a hero standing up against what other people will start to view as a monster, which goes back to what I was saying about Davos and the mainstream media trying to rebuild the public's trust in them. So with that being the narrative, what Jacob Alvarado said about how he believes everyone in that hallway was doing their best simply does not fit with a narrative where those very people are the bad guys. So they're not going to repeat what he said. They will repeat the part about him saying that he didn't have his gear. They all had their gear. That will get repeated the rest of what he said will be completely ignored, despite the fact that he is currently the only adult who was inside, at least that I've seen, and is speaking about his firsthand experience about what went on, if you accept what he said is true. They're just going to disregard most of what he said because it doesn't fit. doesn't fit their narrative. And Peter Arredondo, the villain of the story, he is the Uvalde Independent School District Police Chief. I didn't mention this before. And he was apparently supposed to be the incident commander who declared that the gunman is a barricaded suspect and thus ordered officers to remain outside in the hallway and wait for more resources instead of going in and confronting him sooner. So he was the one who made that decision. And he has also stopped coordinating with state investigators. He hasn't responded to requests for new information in the past couple of days. So these things all make it look like he is engaged, involved in a cover-up, which makes it easier for the media to further demonize him. However, I don't know why he would speak to the media. He knows that anything he says is going to be spun into something negative. So... Unless he is compelled to by the law, I don't know why he would speak to them. And he also was sworn into office yesterday as a member of the Uvalde City Council, which he was elected to. So that adds even more fuel to the fire since he is the guy at the center of the controversy. One other agenda item being served by this story is that I did reference this a moment ago. It is the local officials who the media are demonizing while the media are praising the federal authorities. Well, actually, I'm seeing now that Arredondo made his first public comments in a week this morning. Okay, Arredondo today told, of course, CNN's Shimon Prokopes, which is the, the guy who I was talking about who is going to win people's trust for his reporting on this crisis, 
for him standing up, speaking truth to power, demanding answers. You look at his Wikipedia page, actually, and he has very little information. But for his life and his career, which is only one paragraph, it says basically nothing. The main thing that it says is that in May 2022, he has been covering the Robb Elementary School shooting in Texas, including the first including the related first responder attack timeline controversy. So he is already known for this very thing of which people will trust him because he appears to be sticking it to the man and demanding answers here. Now, he was outside of this Arnando's dude's place, and he told him, Arnando told the CNN guy, that he was not going to release any further information while funerals are going on. He said, we're going to be respectful to the family. We're going to do that eventually. Whenever this is done and the family's quit grieving, then we'll do that, obviously. Talking about giving more statements. He also said that he has been in touch with the Texas Department of Public Safety every single day. Yet the Texas Department of Public Safety said yesterday that Arnando had not responded to a request for a follow-up interview for a couple of days. So, well, I don't know if the, both sides are lying there or anybody's lying because the specific thing that the Texas Department of Public Safety said is that he didn't respond to a request for a, for a follow-up interview. That doesn't mean that he had not been talking to them. So here's how CNN's talking about local authority, Peter Arredondo. Today, three hours ago, CNN confronts Chief Pete Arredondo. See the interaction. Confronts. Embattled Uvalde school chief insists he's not dodging investigators. And here's how CNN talks about the federal authorities who are said to have killed the gunman. The U.S. Border Patrol Tactical Unit, BORTAC, is what they're called. And here's how CNN talks about them. BORTAC is unique in that it provides a global response capability. The unit has conducted training and operations with foreign and domestic law enforcement and military entities throughout the United States and around the world, including support for Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. Operation Iraqi Freedom is a known propaganda operation, a known psychological warfare operation, and they're being credited in this CNN article with supporting that operation Perhaps they're supporting a psychological operation here as well. And they go on to say on CNN that it's now considered the global special response team for the Department of Homeland Security's Bureau of Customs and Border Protection. They glorify this group. This group of federal Department of Homeland Security, global tactical unit, global SWAT team for the U.S. is being glorified by CNN while the local authorities are being demonized. And that's the other angle of this narrative here. Local authorities, bad. Get rid of them. Don't give them any power. Federal authorities, global authorities in charge. All right. One more thing about Ari Dondo before moving on to the next story. I have no idea what Ari Dondo did or didn't do, and I don't believe anything the media says about it either. And I obviously don't believe the authorities because they're saying different things on different days as well. So he could very well be responsible for a lot of things that he's being accused of. He could be guilty of those things that maybe he did do things or didn't do things that made this whole situation even worse than it already was for those children. I have zero idea and I'm not going to let myself convict him of killing a bunch of children because the media is propagandizing me into taking that position Yet at the same time, they're telling me that every fact that comes out is actually not true because they just revealed what the real fact is. So when they're saying that everything they tell us is inaccurate, 
It changes from day to day. I'm not going to believe anything they're saying about this guy either, because that could very well change from day to day. So I have no idea what happened. Nobody who's reporting this has any idea what happened. And probably about 99% of the people talking about this has literally no idea what happened. So I'm going to withhold my judgment about this guy until there's an actual investigation done and there are some facts revealed and there can be due diligence given. I mean, certainly it seems as though something went wrong. Who was responsible for that or what it is that went wrong? I don't know. Nobody knows except for the people involved. Definitely not the media. They don't know. They don't even care. All right, shifting gears. I do have one more interesting story for you here. A suffocating story. But before we get to that, do me a favor and check out the Propaganda Report Patreon page where we offer a number of tiers with a variety of different perks. Every tier, you get the exclusive XR segment that we drop every day that we do a drive time news blast where I play those rare gem clips of the globalist revealing their secrets in their various think tank discussions, among other things. For instance, today in the XR, I'll be playing clips from a Davos panel discussion where a globalist makes a rare admission about what America can get away with that other countries simply cannot and why that is the case. It is a bold admission unlike any that I have heard before. On top of that exclusive XR content, you get the Drive Time News Blast ad-free. I remove the ads for all Patreon subscribers. We also offer higher tier levels, which includes everything I just mentioned, plus some other perks depending on the tier that you are looking at. For instance, we do a monthly DPP disappearing Patreon party where we drink, talk some trash, and have a little fun with a special guest. And since we do cut loose a little bit there, the video disappears afterwards. The chat is always engaging and is always a good time. We also do a monthly Zoom roundtable where we bring together subject matter experts with the highly intelligent, extraordinarily good-looking Propaganda Report Patreon community to discuss patron-chosen topics that we go deep on. It's always enlightening and insightful and very engaging conversation. I'm currently setting up the June roundtable. We already have some great suggestions as to what the topic should be in Patreon. Thank you for everybody who has added to that. And we also offer opportunities for shout-outs, which I will be resuming this month now that I am starting to get back into the swing of things since I returned from my brief absence. All right. That is patreon.com slash propaganda report. Subscribe today. And now for that final story of the day. Have you ever dreamed of one day going into a virtual reality world and getting to experience the sensation of suffocation? Well, you're in luck because researchers at Salzburg University of Applied Sciences in Austria have created a device that pairs with a MetaQuest 2 VR headset, formerly known as the Oculus Quest 2, called the AirRes Mask, that allows users to experience that feeling that every little boy dreams of one day experiencing, having their lungs fill up with smoke as they slowly die out in a raging fire. A fantastic virtual reality experience that the Salzburg University researchers are offering people. What a great invention that is. I mean, for me personally, the only reason that I would ever even want an Oculus Quest mask is so that I can go into a virtual world and actually torture myself and feel real pain. I mean, what other reason would you want a virtual reality headset? Maybe like a waterboarding experience would be good, or maybe I could get my body pulled apart on the rack, or maybe just a good old-fashioned experience of having your balls punched in. That's my kind of VR. The mask works in two ways. The Air Res mask first leverages the mask as a way to monitor the user's breathing and incorporates it into a VR experience to enhance the feeling of immersion. Applications include simple everyday acts like blowing out a virtual candle, that's exciting, inflating a balloon, 
wow, or even playing an instrument such as a harmonica using their own breath, as opposed to somebody else's breath, I guess. The mask can also be used to adapt how the VR experience behaves on the user's respiration rate. Hitting the target when firing a virtual arrow from a bow, for example, is made a lot easier when the user holds their breath and steadies himself. The other approach, the suffocation approach, leverages the mask ability to add resistance to the wearer's ability to breathe. The researchers believe this effect could be used for training purposes. Firefighters could physically experience the lack of oxygen in a room as a raging fire consumes it, including the simulated side effects of the human body not getting enough oxygen, like the onset of tunnel vision, but without the added risk of a real fire. The mask can make flight simulators feel more realistic too, as the added G-forces of high-speed maneuvers make it harder for the pilot to breathe. This isn't the first time, however, that researchers have explored ways to upgrade virtual reality hardware to make simulated experience seem very, very real in a horrifying way. In fact, just last month, a team from Carnegie Mellon University's Future Interfaces Group revealed an off-the-shelf VR headset enhanced with ultrasonic transducers that could recreate the sensation of touch in and around the wearer's mouth. They literally created a way to make it feel like you're kissing someone in VR and all of the other things you can do with your mouth, I guess. But one application of the research featured something a little scarier. It featured a gigantic virtual spider dripping with poison that users could feel splashing across their lips. I can't wait to go home, put on that VR headset and feel like a spider is dripping poison on me. Do a lot of people say that? Is that something a lot of people are eager to go do. What is this preparing people for? Are there a lot of scenarios where people do find themselves about to have a spider drip poison on their lips? Or maybe this is preparing us for when Bill Gates is going to make us all eat bugs to get protein. Maybe this is the eat the bugs conditioning program that the Carnegie Mellon future face, whatever group, future interface group is working on here. And I do find it kind of funny that while the Carnegie Future Interface Group is working on making it possible to actually feel kissing in the metaverse, to feel brushing your teeth, but to definitely feel kissing in the metaverse, every story you read or or every headline you see when you type in metaverse is, researcher says her avatar was gang-raped on Meta's metaverse. So the more real it gets, the more dangerous it gets, perhaps. I think the more real it gets, the more real the experiences seem at an emotional level. I've talked before about how they've done studies where they put people in these VR experiences and then six months later, the people had a hard time distinguishing between what was a real experience that they had during that study and what was a VR created experience. And the more real that gets, the more there will be calls to give real punishment for real crimes when you can maybe do something to somebody that feels absolutely real to their brain and their body. And even though it's not, the impact of it is on their emotions, on their psychology. You know what? I got a Davos clip that talks about this very thing that I'm going to play for you. It's from a panel discussion that was a little less than a week ago titled Shaping a Shared Future, 
making the metaverse. And the description is that many companies are investing in so-called metaverse metaverses, suggesting a powerful growth trajectory for the extended reality ecosystem, XR. What principles should be followed to ensure the consumer and business applications are built in a way that establishes safe, interoperable, inclusive, and accessible environment? And the person speaking in this clip is Omar Sultan Al-Olama. He is a Minister of State for Artificial Intelligence, Digital Economy, and Remote Work Applications, Office of the Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates. And in this clip, he's talking about some of the dangers that could arise as the metaverse develops and maybe what should be done about them. They're talking about regulation, stuff like that. Absolutely. So there are different types of risks that we need to pay attention to. There are risks that need to be enforced by government, let's say, financial transactions that happen in the real world for goods that you buy in the metaverse. Like you mentioned, the Air Jordans or the, the monkey yacht that you talked about. or board, The board ape. Board I call them monkeys, but that, that's an insult to the board, board apes. <laughs> so, so if you actually pay money for that and you don't get it in the metaverse, someone needs to enforce that action, right? So that's one type of issue that governments need to talk about and, and in some way, shape or form come to an agreement of how that's going to be enforced. Then there is the more extreme aspect, which is terrorism, really terrorizing people on the metaverse, because the difference is, if I send you a text on WhatsApp, it's text, right? It might terrorize you, but to a certain degree, it will not create the memories that you uh, will have PTSD from it. But if I come into the metaverse, and it's a realistic world that we're talking about maybe in the future, and I actually murder you, and you see it, it actually takes you to a certain extreme where you need to enforce it aggressively across the world, because everyone agrees that certain things are unacceptable. There needs to be a conversation today at the level of the United Nations or the ITU or these um, non-governmental bodies where a certain standard is set. That standard is set on the internet to a large extent where everyone agrees that the content on the internet is actually content that, for example, dark web content is illegal in many countries. Content that is not part of the dark web, that has not, nothing to do with drug trafficking, you know, um, uh, child pornography, etc., is acceptable, and we're able to use this common platform. I also think that there needs to be passporting between the different platforms or the different layers of the metaverse. So if Meta develops something and Magic Leap develops another, their, you know, their own platform rather than the hardware and actual software that you live on, there has to be some sort of interoperability between them. And the person needs to be able to choose the content that they go between. Because what we've seen today is there are a few things. Content is king. Why will you go to the metaverse? I think meeting on the metaverse is good, but I actually know nine out of 10 people that would say we prefer to meet face to face. COVID is an issue, they're worried about it. Right. But actually sitting and seeing people's body language, interacting with them, today is preferential. Why people want to go to the metaverse is because they're able to access content that they've never seen before, experience new experiences, play new games with people on a, on a larger scale. And it is important for us to have this conversation today and build at least the ground rules and work our way up. Okay, there's a lot there. He made that point at the end there to kind of wrap all that up, starting from the ground up when it comes to regulation and punishment. And it sounds like they're going to be inducing people or seducing people with drippy spiders into that metaverse and then turning around and perhaps punishing them for behaving in certain ways in there. And people might not be familiar with the rules when they get in a metaverse. They might have no idea. They might accidentally press a button. What if you accidentally hit something on your joystick or whatever and you bump into somebody? Is that going to be or put you at risk of being accused of sexual harassment and punished? 
what type of punishments are we talking here? If it's a real experience, if it's real trauma, the act of murdering somebody makes somebody feel like they went through this traumatic experience where they were violently assaulted. Is that real prison time that this guy's talking about, I wonder? Is that going to be in what jail are you going in? Are you in a metaverse jail? Is it just like Black Mirror? I mean, if the experience feels real one way, wouldn't the jail experience or prison experience feel real? Obviously, you can't keep that headset on somebody forever, but you can put a chip in somebody's head, I guess. I don't know what the solution to that is. I know that it's global. That's why he's talking about interoperability, transferring data all across all of these platforms, unlimited access to everybody's data, no barriers, no walls put up. How do you police a world like that? They're talking about that now. They're far away from it. I don't know that this world is going to fully take as it is right now. It will morph, I believe. It will be a combination of virtual and... I guess augmented. Actually, I think it's going to be more augmented. There might be some virtual aspects of it that they somehow work into the augmented reality, but I think that's where it is, where you have the external devices and you see the virtual world overlaid onto the real world. They also talk in this panel discussion about how learning can be faster using these techniques in the metaverse. But there are a a few uh, very high potentially positive impacts of this. The first is uh, there's a statistic of, uh, you know, 70% of what you read, you forget within the first two minutes, right? It's because you don't actually experience that content. It's flat, you're reading it. Some people have better recall or better memory. Most people forget it. It's the same with video. If you can actually experience what you're learning, it sticks for much longer. And I think the same way that the internet unleashed a revolution of really improving human intelligence democratizing knowledge, and today you have people building nuclear reactors in their backyards and they're 16 years old, uh, in some cases, it's because the internet... Less sure about that one. Uh, no, <laughs> no, it's true. So, that's so it is sure that's a good thing, is what I was saying. No, uh, uh, well, it, it just shows you the level of intelligence that people I have today. Like a 16-year-old kid has the level of intelligence of what a PhD in the 60s would take 20 years to study and achieve. So these things are positive, and I think that this will actually lead to a better future. Yeah, so there you go. In the metaverse, you'll be able to learn faster and ultimately build nuclear reactors in your backyard. Everybody has a nuclear reactor. It's really taking the arms race up to a new level there. But that idea of being able to learn faster, that is an interesting thought because it is a learn-by-doing type approach that they're trying to create anyway. And I can see how that might be. And I can see how that could be effective in some ways. All right, that's the show for today. Thank you all for listening. You guys can find your Drive Time News Blast every weekday at thepropreport.com or your favorite podcasting platform with the Propaganda Report podcast feed. If you want access to that extra content that I was telling you about, the XR, then go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and subscribe so you can get that content and find out what those globalists are saying. We will talk to you guys next time or in the DMB XR. Have a fantastic rest of your day.